From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the state of green business. A look inside our 10th annual assessment of sustainability progress in the private sector, plus sustainability in the era of Trump. How the sustainable business community is gearing up to take on policy challenges, and how Adobe is thinking or rethinking strategy in the new world order. Nothing this week's been photoshopped this week on 350. It's February 3rd, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me here as always, senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hi, how are you doing? It's been a whirlwind week. <laughs> it has. It's been, you know, creating the uh, State of Green Business Report is, I mean, not really like giving birth for people who've actually given birth, <laughs> but in some ways it feels like that, uh, including the painful push at the very end. But, you know, in the <laughs> end, in the end, it's, we produce something beautiful, we think. So uh, this report gets, you know, better and better all the time, but it, it's, well, it's out. That was a, a lovely metaphor, but for the uninformed, uh, let's let's make sure we spell it out. What is the state of green business report? Well, we started doing this in 2008. I mean, basically, we stepped back and said, you know, we've been writing about this stuff forever. That even then, it was you know a good uh, almost 20 years, and and said, well, what difference is this making? How can we assess whether all these stories that we write every day and we report on all this seeming progress, is it actually making a difference? So we set up this report that with a, with a number of metrics that we could uh, look at year after year. In the first few years, it was largely US-centric. But in 2013, we hooked up with TrueCost, which is uh, based in the UK and is now a division of S&P Dow Jones Indices. They do incredibly in-depth, detailed research on the environmental performance and what they call the natural capital costs of thousands of companies around the world. And uh, they do that at the company level and at the sector level. But we ask them to aggregate the data for the U.S., for the S&P 500, and for uh, 1,200 global companies and, and help us take the State of Green Business Report more globally. So it's been that journey that we've been on uh, ever since. And it, each year we you know, fine-tune the metrics and come up with more and innovative metrics. We can talk a little bit about some of those, what those were this year. Mm -hmm. I know we're going to jump into some audio from the from the webcast we did to debut the report. Um, but in the meantime, that wasn't the only thing you had going on this week. Am I right? Yeah, it was a busy week. Uh, somehow, this last week of January, first week of February, was full of things. I had I participated or led three webinars. Uh, one was for the state of green business. Another one was with Arizona State University's uh, Julie N. Wrigley Global Institute on Sustainability uh, and something called the Security and Sustainability Forum. We did this very technically geeky but fascinating session on restoring the carbon balance, the technologies that are being used increasingly uh, for uh, what are called negative carbon or carbon removal technologies. Uh, we had three professors from ASU, Princeton, and the University of Texas at Austin. And I'm sure we'll find an archive link to that we can post on the uh, webpage for this week's podcast. And then I did a briefing on the state of green business to uh, a uh, large private equity company that has several hundred brands and their sustainability uh, executives from each of those brands or many of those brands were were on the call sort of listening in. So yeah, you know, just getting downloaded and, and, and then the real action this week is getting ready for green biz in less than in like 10 days, uh, just doing a lot of prep calls. So <sighs> I'm glad it's Friday. Well, I hear you on that, but let's go ahead and jump right into the state of green business. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so we teased the history of the annual SOGBY report, as we belovedly refer to it in these parts. But Joel, can you just give us a little bit of a breakdown in terms of the high-level takeaways that, that you were most intrigued by this year? Sure. SOGBY is our internal. We try not to talk about that to the rest of the world, Lauren. But here we just, we've said it. SOGBY is SOGB, the state of green business. Um, heretofore, we'll call it just the, the state of green business. Uh, you know, every year there's some good news and bad news. And this year, of course, is no different. I mean, there's there's some really encouraging signs of progress. So, for example, one of the things we do in the report is we measure what what's called the natural capital impacts, which is the the all of the withdrawals of, of resources from the, the biosphere um, and all of the emissions that are created in producing the basically the global economy in dollar amounts. So how do you put a dollar amount to all the you know, wastewater and carbon emissions and toxic releases and hundreds, literally hundreds of other things? That's what TrueCost does. And we turn that into an, an index and we look at at how those natural capital costs uh, are growing or shrinking and looking at it by sector, looking at it by activity, a number of different ways. Um, and the good news is that the price tag associated with all these res- all this resource extraction and emissions into the air, water, and soil were down 15% since its peak in 2013. And this is part of a trend we've seen, uh, we started seeing last year, and it continues um, to to drop, so we're we're doing better even as the economy, you know, has not only stabilized but continues to grow. Another piece of good news is that the the assets invested in the United States uh, in stocks that consider environmental issues has grown seventy seven fold since twenty ten. Uh, it's almost eight trillion dollars. Some of this is in the green bonds that are being offered to raise funds to support projects that have positive environmental benefits. That's grown uh, about 80-fold since 2012. It's now $38 billion. So, I mean, that's a lot of numbers, but just we're just seeing more money pouring into this. And one other piece of that is that about 60% of the global stock exchanges, the stock exchanges around the world, uh, have implemented or are in the process of developing environmental regu- regulations or requirements for companies that want to list on them. In other words, if you want to be listed in a certain stock exchange, you have to meet certain environmental requirements, usually around disclosure. Um, and so this is impacting 50,000 companies potentially over time. And so this is really interesting. The, the amount of disclosure we're going to be that's going to be required of companies is only going to grow. And that's a trend I know we've covered a little bit on the news side, but it's also something that Rich Madison, the CEO of TrueCost, spoke to in our State of Green Business webcast this week. Let's take a listen. So 2016 was definitely a year of significant change, as we've all experienced, uh, and volatility. So aside from political shifts, 2016 was really the year that the Paris Agreement was beginning to be understood by both the financial and uh, business community, leading through to a number of breakthroughs in policy and behavior. Um, In terms of State of Green Business Index, uh, what we do, which is what we've done for some time, is we've analyzed the top 500 companies in the U.S., which are the S&P. 500 U.S. index, uh, and the top 1,200 companies, actually, which is the S&P 1,200. And we've analyzed uh, those organizations and disclosures um, for uh, various different um, performance measures and uh, analyzed the trends over a number of years, over the past five years. What you can see there is that um, a general positive signal in terms of the environmental KPIs that we've been tracking for the last five years. Uh, so for CO2 emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, uh, they sit at a five-year low, down 10% since 2011. For water, that is water consumption. That's a similar kind of number. Um, and for water pollution, uh, that metric has fallen even more quickly, down 25% since 2013. And for waste, uh, we are down 11% over the same period. So quite positive signals uh, in terms of the reduction of environmental impact by businesses for both the US 500 companies and the top 1,200 companies globally. Um, In terms of disclosures, uh, we found that 
four-fifths of the global 1,200 now disclose some kind of environmental data uh, that can be used to feed into these kind of measures, uh, and around two-thirds of U.S. companies now disclose some kind of environmental data as well. So uh, we can see that actually, you know, in terms of the global picture, there's quite a lot of companies actually that are now reporting on environmental information. Um, however, if you track that over time, we've seen that improvements in disclosure uh, and the levels of disclosure have been slow more re in more recent years. So, you know, you have to ask the question, are we reaching the limits of voluntary disclosure? And certainly we know from other um, data sets that we have that if you look uh, further afield from the 1,200 uh, largest companies, the levels of disclosure drop off quite sharply. So they might be uh, companies, for example, in supply chains where information is not necessarily in the public domain at this stage. So there's definitely more to do in terms of disclosure. So 2016 was really the year of sustainable finance, and it's continuing, and I'll touch on that uh, in a second. But really what we found was that um, 2016 uh, was a year where sust sustainable finance came to the fore. Uh, so what does that really mean? It means that the finance community um, really took notice of the Paris Climate Agreement at the end of 2015, and there was a lot of action. Um, in France, uh, for example, Article 173 was enacted, which required all French um, investment professionals, asset owners, and asset managers to measure and report on climate risks associated with their portfolios. Now, that doesn't just impact on France, that impacts on um, any asset manager that has uh, a portfolio that, contain, that is based in France, um, but it might be a global portfolio. So this is quite a big shift uh, because what we do find is that when, um, when investors start to measure environmental risks, they do start to report on those risks, and then you have actions that follow as a consequence. Um, it was... Also a year for green finance in general as, as a discussion topic. Um, I, it was a pleasure uh, to, to witness the G20 in China uh, last year in September. Um, and in fact, for the very first time, the G20 released a green finance synthesis report, um, which really highlighted a number of different issues with um, green finance and, in fact, uh, sustainable finance in general, and made a, a, a number of recommendations in, um, that will enable uh, blockers to be removed and will, remain, um, will enable um, sustainable cattle flows, in other words, for the cost of capital to reduce for companies that are providing some kind of benefit to society, the environment, and still providing return. So, in other words, sustainable capital flows, which is really a big topic right now amongst the G20 group, and that work is continuing this year. It's also a huge topic in various other jurisdictions, such as the EU, um, and is, is a growing topic globally. So, this is all to, to underline the data that we have, um, uh, which we, we, we got from the U.S. Uh, Social Investment Forum. Sustainable investment, sorry, sorry, um, which shows that there's a, a growing trend in terms of investors using and factoring in ESG, environmental, social, and governance in decision making. And there's a 77-fold increase since 2010 in the U.S. alone. And in fact, that's kind of mirrored in the efforts of stock exchanges. So what we found globally is that um, around 60% of the world's stock exchanges now have environmental listing conditions impacting up to 50,000 companies. So this is, this is a very significant um, development and one that will become more significant in the future because while some of these requirements are voluntary in certain cases and uh, more compliant explained in other cases, they're rarely mandatory, um, some of these reporting requirements, um, one one major thing happened in December 2016, which is that the Financial Stability Board um, put together a task force on climate-related disclosures uh, to analyze the risks to financial stability associated with climate change um, for the investment community, for banks, for uh, governments. And they had a number of different recommendations that they came out with. Um, and really, the thrust of this group which was chaired by Michael Bloomberg and um, Mark Carney uh, initiated, uh, who's the governor of the Bank of England, also initiated the, um, the study group. Um, they really found that the, you know, the adverse effects of climate change 
will threaten economic resilience, growth, and financial stability, and capital markets are best placed to finance the transition to the low-carbon economy, given the scale of investment required. Um, now, the recommendations are broad-reaching and will probably be implemented through mechanisms such as changing listing rules uh, and changing the requirements of any company listed on exchanges uh, across the world. Um, and so that would include uh, the top 500 companies in the U.S. and the S&P 500, and it would also include the S&P 1200, the, the global companies, because they are all listed companies. And um, the, the disclosure requirements are quite broad-reaching, and they do require that companies conduct scenario analysis and provide uh, relevant and material and practical forward-looking information on climate risk in relation uh, to financial risks. So quite a far-reaching recommendation that many are still thinking about uh, how to implement. All right. Well, given the state of the world and your earlier assessment that we have sort of a mixed bag this year, what's the bad news here? Well, we're seeing slowing down of, of, of some things that should be speeding up. Um, for example, the, the use of uh, wind, solar, and hydro by big utility companies has stagnated and even dropped a little bit since 2011. So while solar continues to grow, its use by utilities is not growing at all. And while companies' greenhouse gas reduction projects are, are growing, they're, they're, they're doing more that they account for less than than seven and a half percent of what's needed to be achieved every year between now and 2050 to meet the goals set forth in the in the Paris Agreement. So let me say, state that another way: companies are only doing about one twelfth one twelfth of what needs to happen if we're going to achieve the goals in in uh, set forth in the COP 21 Paris Agreement. That's not good enough. And what about the global picture here? Obviously, we think about the role of the U.S. being maybe not what we thought it was going to be coming out of the Paris climate talks. Um, I know the role of China is is one point that, that came up. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's sort of ironic. Our, our, our dear leader, uh, President Trump, uh, said once that uh, climate change was a hoax being perpetuated by the by the Chinese to either variously destroy our economy or bolster bolster theirs. I can't remember the details, uh, but in fact, this is turning out to be a boon for the Chinese economy, particularly if, as we expect, the uh, the U.S. government is going to. Uh, opt out or certainly, you know, take a, a much lower role in leading the low carbon economy. Uh, I mean, the Chinese are investing billions of dollars um, in in all of this. In fact, uh, Rich Madison talked about the $360 billion investment in clean energy that the Chinese are making. So the metrics are really just one piece of the puzzle with the State of Green Business Report. And we also work on 10 trends that we see as sort of defining the field for the year to come. I know the two I worked on this year uh, were things we've definitely talked about on this podcast. The first one being financing for sustainable supply chains, how companies are getting creative, uh, providing financial incentives for smallholders, especially in the agricultural field. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I also looked at the advances we're seeing in clean mobility. So how ride sharing, car sharing, all these different tech advances in the field of transportation are interacting with advances on the commercial side, like hybrid trucks, um, eventually thinking down the road about the potential for electric or self-driving fleets. And those were just two of the 10. Joel, I was curious um, if there were other things that sort of stuck out this year from from the trends we were looking at. Well, there were two of them of the 10. So there were eight that stuck out. But uh, yeah, I think, first of all, one of the things that's fascinating about this report for me is um, so we've now done this report for 10 years and each year we pick 10 trends. So now we've got a hundred trends under our belt that we have named. And these are things that we expect over the next year to two years. We don't specify exactly, but certainly the next year companies will start hearing more about. And I have to say, I'm kind of proud that we picked pretty well. I'm not, not every one of them you know, became big deals within you know the short time frame, but, but, we called a lot of them as they were just beginning to emerge. The circular economy a few years ago, 
the growth of interest in food waste as it relates not just to, to food and hunger, but also to, to climate change and emissions. Um, a number of others that we've been at the forefront, and we missed some as well, but it, it was really fun uh, to go back and look through the the hundred that we chose. Uh, I mean, this year, for example, I think we're, we're I expect we'll be right on it again when we, uh, Heather Clancy, our senior writer, did one on the blockchain, which is this, you know, hard to explain online ledger that's designed to make transactions both more secure and transparent. And it's growing use and sustainability, things like keeping uh, uh, IBM is working with Qinghai University in Beijing, focusing on how to use the blockchain to authenticate food sources and keep tabs in a way that will significantly uh, make significant improvements in food safety and spoilage, reducing spoilage, um, how the blockchain will be used in, uh, is being used in tracking gemstones from conflict regions to make sure that they're conflict-free or being used during uh, distributed energy generation uh, in ways to do things that we've never been able to do before. Maybe someday neighbors could trade megawatts uh, efficiency uh, the, uh, on their part with other neighbors or you know, pay extra to keep the air conditioning on certain certain hot days, or or community solar power, or trading carbon credits, or any number of other things. And so, um, you know, whether the blockchain gets to scale this year or next year, or maybe in twenty nineteen, we'll see. But we think this is going to be uh, on the leading edge. We talk about advanced materials. Uh, I think that's really interesting in a world that's looking at circular economy, uh, how does circularity meet up with you know, some of these new fangled plastics and, and graphene nanotechnology materials, um, carbon fibers and things, are, are we and 3D printing materials as we start to generate prototypes one after the other because they're much cheaper and faster than the old way, will we be creating materials that do go back into cycles endlessly as we want to in the circular economy, or will these be, you know, sort of the traditional take-make-waste linear model? Um, we looked at the sustainable development goals, which are now increasingly being known as the global goals, which is kind of an interesting story in and of itself. But what, you know, how the SDGs are actually now becoming a business strategy, and companies are starting to map their engagements and strategies and activities with those uh, goals and trying to figure out where they can align. So, you know, get the report. It's a free download. Just go to greenbiz.com. You'll see see it plastered all over the, the homepage and we'll send it, put the link in the page for this week's podcast. You know, check it out. It's, it's a good read. Uh, 10 stories uh, that we think are relevant now and that we will be tracking in more granular detail over the next year or two or three or whatever. Definitely lots of different things to keep an eye on. But I did want to circle back to one thing you mentioned earlier, Joel, and that's sort of the evolution of corporate sustainability programs. You mentioned that um, it's sort of the role of corporation as clean energy buyer. But I'm curious if there were any other takeaways this year in terms of how programs are expanding, evolving, shutting down. Sort of where are we now? Well, this is part of the webcast that we did on Tuesday when we launched the report. It's not in the report itself. It's actually going to come out in a separate uh, story that uh, our vice president and senior analyst colleague, John Davies, uh, produces every year on the state of the profession. But John has been tracking for years how company sustainability programs are evolving or growing or shrinking, their priorities, their headcounts, their budgets, uh, any number of things. And uh, I don't think most a lot of people don't know this, hopefully all of our podcast listeners are part of the Green Biz Intelligence Panel, which is a group of about five or 6,000 people that al allow us to survey them uh, several times a year on some key issues. And we go out every year uh, to them and, and others and look at you know, how their budgets and headcounts and, and priorities are shaping up. And we'll hear a little bit now of John talking about sort of how some programs are surviving where others are going away and sort of what the difference between them is. No matter who had won the election, last year we saw a number of programs go by the wayside. And uh, some big name companies who sort of jettisoned their sustainability uh, programs. And, and what that showed to us is that they weren't really programs. They were add-ons. 
And where we see the greatest focus is, is the companies who have really been embedding sustainability into their operations, into their business, so that if, and, and we saw that it was a change in leadership for most of the companies that jettisoned their programs, either at the CEO or COO executive sponsor level. And so if that can happen that quickly, it wasn't really happening. And so what we see is it's about making a business case. And a lot of companies are actually do, even though we bemoan the quarterly drive of, of the markets and everything, a lot of companies do look long-term. And one of the projects we did last year was to work with Marsha McLennan and the Association of Finance Professionals to look at how sustainability is being integrated with the risk management function. And that is an increasing uh, uh, trend that we see. And so I think you're going to see more companies looking at the impacts of climate change, of water, of all the natural capital work that, that Rich was talking about and, and, and considering that in their planning for the company. So it may be a, a tough four years personally for a lot of the people that I talk with, but I think for corporations, they're taking a much longer view. It's pretty interesting stuff. Were there any other findings from John in terms of uh, corporate sustainability? Well, one of the things that John surveyed in his most recent outreach to the Green Biz Intelligence Panel was asking them, what impact will the 2016 U.S. election have on your company's sustainability strategy? We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, some of that uh, with uh, Vince Signeo from Adobe and Richard Eidlin from the American Sustainable Business Council in a few minutes. But this was a survey of sustainability executives from mostly big companies. Uh, in fact, we segment out the billion-dollar revenue companies from the less than a billion-dollar revenue companies. But across the board, two-thirds of the biggest companies said, no impact. It's full speed ahead. We're going to keep moving forward. This really isn't going to have an impact. Um, uh, about a quarter said it'll slow us down but not stop us. Um, and uh, so that's uh, in almost 90%, that's over 90% right there. But uh, 68% of the big companies, 53% of the smaller ones said, this is not going to change what we do. And as we, and as we got to speak to about 50 or 60, maybe 70 of these companies during the month of January, face-to-face -face at our Green Biz Executive Network meetings that we held, it became pretty evident there were sort of three reasons why this isn't going to change much. Uh, one is that, first of all, most of companies are making longer-term bets. They're working on their 2020, 2025, maybe even 2030 or beyond goals. So they're not looking at the next congressional or presidential election cycle. They're not really that, these really aren't about politics. Second, most of the, certainly the biggest companies have maybe half or even more of their uh, revenue comes from outside the U.S. So they're not looking at, they're looking at global markets. They're looking at global trends. They're looking at what countries all over the world are doing and thinking not just the United States. And they're not setting a standard in one country and then a different standard in another country. They tend these days to be creating global standards. And so, so if you're setting standards that align with some of the leadership countries, uh, I guess the U.S. Can, operations get a free ride along with that. And that's not a horrible thing. It's it just the way it is. And the third reason is that these are not about regulatory issues. They're not even about reputation issues. They're about risk management issues. They're, they're not about doing the right thing, just about doing things right. And so companies are, are bringing on carbon. They're reducing energy use. They're green, uh, ensuring that the sustainability uh, and continuity of their supply chains for sound business reasons. This is not about political whims or green trends or anything of, of the sort. So that was pretty interesting. Um, and I think that bodes really well for the state of green business.
So as we alluded to at the top of the show, one thing the entire world, especially the sustainability world, is sort of figuring out how to recalibrate for right now is the world under Trump. And Joel, I know you've had a couple conversations on this topic of late, one of them being with Richard Eidlin of the American Sustainable Business Council. So to start out, what is the American Sustainable Business Council? Well, ASBC is an advocacy group uh, that is working on behalf of, of companies and uh, of all sizes, and it's mostly mid and a few larger and a lot of smaller organizations um, and some trade groups as well that belong to uh, doing advocacy work at both the federal and state levels around a whole range of sustainable business issues, not just environmental ones, but also including things like minimum wage and and, and other things. And uh, I, it's just time, you know, given all that's been going on, to catch up with Richard Eidlin and 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 ask what's going on, and and really was curious to see how this group was reframing or rethinking are just planning to to take on this new political reality. So here's our conversation. The business response to the new administration in Congress in Washington, D.C. continues to be a topic that we're going to be covering, well, probably for a long time. And uh, right now we're going to hear about uh, the perspective of an organization called the American Sustainable Business Council. And I have here Vice President of Policy and Campaigns and the co-founder, Richard Eidlin. Richard, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good afternoon, Joel. Great to talk to you. So for people who don't necessarily know ASBC, can you give the sort of elevator pitch? Sure. ASBC was created in the summer of 2009 in um, response to a recognition that sustainable or triple bottom line or responsible companies had not been involved historically in the public policy process at the federal or state level to the extent that they might. And consequently, uh, more traditional incumbent uh, industries were having a disproportionate impact on the kinds of policies that were made, whether it was about climate or workplace, tax reform, um, agricultural policies. And so our goal from the outset was to make sure that the sustainable business community had a direct voice in talking to legislators, both at the federal and state level. And so who are your members? What, uh, how do you categorize them? Yeah. So we have uh, two types of members. One are individual companies like Etsy or Solar City. Uh, ben and Jerry's, Eileen Fisher, Patagonia, Dansko, lots and lots of other companies across the country. And then the other type of member are business organizations. Those are independent of ASBC, but look to us to support their policy work. And some of those are place-based, like Grand Rapids and uh, Local First in Michigan or Local First in Arizona. And then we also have some industry-specific groups that are members like the Solar Energy Industries Association or Outdoor Industry Association or the Sustainable uh, Furnishings Council. And all told, Joel, we represent over 200,000 companies across the country. Yeah, wow. So I'm guessing about three months ago, you had no idea that the nature and quantity of issues that would be flying your way would be quite like they are. Tell us right. a little bit about right. what things have been like uh, at ASBC since uh, November 8th. Well, they have been uh, fast and furious, and uh, we've been really studying the landscape and looking at uh, a few approaches. One is defending the gains that we feel were uh, we succeeded in helping bring about during the Obama administration, be they on clean energy or workplace or small business capital access or creating a more balanced agricultural system in this country. And so we've been defending a lot of those gains and thinking about how to do that most effectively both in D.C. and at the state capitals, and mobilizing our members to weigh in. And then secondly, we've been looking at where there might be opportunities to work with this new Congress and or the Trump administration, and um, maybe on infrastructure. We can talk about that more if you'd like, uh, possibly on the idea of worker ownership so that more support can be provided to companies that wish to be employee stock-owned uh, plans or, or cooperatives. Um, and then thirdly, we've been thinking 
a lot about moving our some of our efforts to the state level where we think there may be more opportunity to get some uh, some accomplishments uh, realized at the state level. I'm guessing that those on the right side of the aisle, which is probably the constituency that you most need to influence to do the things that you just talked about, probably have a little bit of a um, two-sided relationship. On the one hand, you're about uh, business, and you have a lot of smaller businesses, at least not the Fortune 500, some of the ones you named, and I think behind those are a lot of other much smaller values-driven businesses. And that, I guess, is the other side of the coin, is that it, you, you, on one hand, it's about business and jobs and econo- um, economic opportunity, but it's also about these these progressive, sustainable issues. So how do you balance those two? Well, we do that in part by suggesting that there are a number of ways to measure success in this economy and that uh, a singular focus on the financial bottom line we don't think really constitutes success. And so companies that have a broader perspective about their impact on society and the environment and, of course, being profitable, we think um, – is a very important way to measure success. And we have lots of evidence that those kinds of companies succeed in the economy. They attract workers and they retain their market share. So we try to bring that evidence to the attention of lawmakers, uh, both at the federal and state level. And then we also make a very strong case that uh, investment in clean energy, investment in people, investment in communities uh, needs to be done most effectively, we think, with a public-private sector partnership. So the contention by the Trump administration that we need to have a wholesale decimation of the regulatory system uh, we think is misguided and that certainly regulations can be improved upon and simplified but that also regulations can often foster innovation and create a more level playing field um, and help small businesses in particular who benefit uh, in a number of cases from regulation. Um, And then thirdly, you know, we too are very concerned about the fiscal solvency of the country. And so if we look at something like a carbon tax as related to climate change, which we're deeply involved in, you know, we would make the argument that um, it's a wise investment. It's a great way to address fundamental business risks uh, from climate change. And it would be a, a way to equalize the costs across the economy by putting that uh, by putting a price on carbon. One of the things we hear from uh, businesses, particularly big businesses, but I'm sure some smaller and mid-sized ones too, is that, while they may not be in favor of a lot of the of a lot of the things that have come out already so far in the new uh, Trump administration and Congress, they may even find them horrifying. That there's a lot of different issues that they are up against, and so they have to pick their fights. They may mm-hmm. be mo- mm-hmm. maybe more about right. minimum wage, for example, right. or immigration, and less about climate change. How do you get business leaders to to move along these these issues and and show up in all the ways you want? need them to. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. And companies have to pick and choose carefully and have to associate themselves with an issue that's most relevant to their brand uh, and to what their customers you know, feel most strongly about. Um, so what we do is understand, you know, by talking to our members closely, what do they care most about? And I'll you know, give you a few examples. So for instance, on chemical safety, We've been working on that issue for years with the Honest Company and Seventh Generation Earth-Friendly Products and Method and other companies. And now in California, there's a bill that's been introduced on disclosing ingredients in various household chemical products, particularly cleaning products. And so in the case of those companies I mentioned and many more, you know, they have a specific interest in the passage of that legislation. So that's where they would gravitate towards. Um, other companies you know, feel very strongly about a higher minimum wage like an Eileen Fisher or, or a Dansko because they've recognized that's imperative to their, their business and good for their, the communities they operate in. So companies have to pick and choose, but what ASBC, the American Sustainable Business Council, 
is able to do <clears throat> is support those companies getting educated about an issue and essentially be their public affairs, government relations office in DC, Joel. So they don't need to be the expert on all those issues. They can look to us to do that. So what do you tell companies that say, you know, I don't think we can make a difference. I mean, look, you know, GM and and, and Ford and other companies are already, you know, fighting with the with the president on Twitter. How can my small company make a difference? What do you, how do you what do you tell them in terms mm-hmm. of the risks that or what maybe not risks of just sitting this out and waiting to see what happens? Yeah, well, I, I do think it is risky to sit this out because so much is at stake. Not only is the well-functioning of our democracy at, at stake, you know, I, I think, but also the types of policies and the direction of the economy and how we deal with large issues like water quality and, and you know, environment. Um, so what we tell those companies, you know, is it's better to be at the table than on the menu and that if you don't show up, then decisions in the regulatory arena and legislatively will be made that really will be counter to your to your interests. So we also know that both Republicans and Democrats herald the importance of small and mid-sized companies who do create most of the jobs in the economy. And so what we're focused on is making sure that the voices of those business people are heard by the staff and members of Congress who are, in fact, very eager to learn about the sustainable business community. And again, I go back to you know an earlier point, um, because that community hasn't participated as much. There's been sort of this big narrative that, you know, what's good for Wall Street is good for America. And that is only, you know, partially true. So our approach has been to get businesses involved because it's in their interest. But we also know that when they get involved, it can change how the media reports on what businesses care about and that business is not monolithic by any means. And that's an important message that legislators need to understand. Well, there's a lot that uh, legislators and businesses need to understand here and a lot more that you're going to have a very, very, very busy year. And I'd look forward to uh, checking back with you uh, over the year to hear more about what's going on, what some of the issues are and what companies can do. But for now, let's leave it at that. Richard Eidlin, Vice President and Co-Founder of the American Sustainable Business Council. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Good. Joel, thank you for having me. That's good perspective. But to dig down a bit deeper at the company level, um, Joel, we mentioned on last week's show that you had been over to see our friends at Adobe, obviously famous for their software like Photoshop, InDesign, all that stuff. Um, and I'm curious in terms of how they think about sustainability, what did you hear? So Adobe hosted uh, one of the three meetings we had last month uh, for the Green Biz Executive Network. And and one of the things, I, as I said before, that we did uh, at this meeting, this round of meetings, all three meetings, was to ask uh, the people sitting around the table, big companies, all billion-dollar-plus companies, uh, tech companies, uh, railroads, airlines, banks, uh, retailers, uh, a whole range of others, what has changed in your sustainability strategy since the uh, 2016 election results came out? And as we said, you know, not a lot, but we got into some really interesting conversations and, and how they're thinking about this. So I pulled aside Vince Digneo, who's a sustainability strategist uh, at Adobe, and just, I think, one of the uh, most forthright people in this space who just terms of just having a great perspective and be willing to say what they think, uh, which isn't always the case, and uh, wanted to talk to him about Adobe's perspective on uh, the the new administration and what's going to change. So here's that conversation. We're in the beautiful San Francisco offices of Adobe uh, Systems uh, in this one of the oldest buildings in San Francisco, uh, renovated uh, just in an amazing way. And I'm sitting here with Vince Digneo, sustainability strategist at Adobe, uh, at here at the Green Biz Executive Network meeting. One of the things we talked about, Vince, at this meeting is. Uh, we went around the room, uh, asked what effect, if any, does the 2016 presidential election have on, in this case, your company's, Adobe's sustainability plans and strategies? What, 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 what's your response? 
Right. Well, for, first of all, thanks, Joel, for having me uh, join you for this talk. I actually love your your podcasts, listen to them all the time. I think this is a great opportunity. Um, so, yeah, here we are. We're, we're hosting the GBAN meeting this week, and the question is, um, how is our strategy affected by the basically the results of the last few months? And I can be definitive in saying it hasn't. Since I got here, we've been committed to uh, running our business sustainably, and that, that means our commitment to renewable energy. It means to diverting waste. It means to educating employees and giving them opportunities to participate. Um, there's an array of things that, that we've committed to, and it is not changing at all. I, in fact, I would see a sense of urgency perhaps coming um, in renewable energy to try and get things moving a little bit quicker. Um, and then I also think in, in terms of being able to talk about it to encourage our peers and, and anybody else that there are actions you can take. These things that we own, we actually can make a big difference and f feel really good about it. Um, one of the one of the questions that somebody asked me about this is, are you know, are, are you optimistic? And one person in, in the group said, yeah, optimistic. And the way that I look at it is not necessarily optimism, but carrying on the traditions that we've sort of learned over the last eight years that is really push sustainability past anything that we've ever seen, which is hopeful. So what do you tell people who you run across, as, as we all do, that are kind of despondent right now, that are saying, I don't, I've never seen anything like this. Everything we've worked for, uh, everything I've been doing for the last n number of years is, seems like lost in the fog here. How do you retain that sense of hope amidst all this seemingly, you know, retro and, you know, turning back the clock uh, kinds of policy and politics. Right. So uh, this is a fantastic question. I'm actually going to turn it back on you, Joel, because, um, I mean, I'll certainly finish with my thoughts on this, but you've written some amazing pieces since the beginning of all this transition into our new reality, so to speak. And I think that it's uplifting, but it, more than anything, it's pointing the way. And that's really what we need because a lot of people ask me, you know, what do you make of this? How is it going to change? You know, you know, are you despondent and this sort of thing? And, and, you know, I look at it this as one more challenge that we've had. I mean, our roles are certainly not without challenges. So the, the way that I'm looking at this is you're despondent when you feel there's nothing you can do or you're alone. You know, you're sort of wallowing by yourself trying to figure your way out. But the fact is, your words, our actions, meeting together, are driving forward. It points the direction. It's showing that, you know, once again, that, that we can be hopeful, not concerned or wait and see. I think that's actually the worst thing to be saying because we're not we're not a generation um, or a working, you know, I'd say work population that waits and sees what happens. I mean, if we're really going to be leaders and, you know, and over we're innovators, we have to be thinking forward and acting on it. And it's sort of with respect to everything that's that's in our in our work environment or our, or our ecosystem, uh, but with forward thinking, um, ideas and actions. And that, that's really where it has to be. So we're sitting in the middle of, as I said, the San Francisco office of Adobe. And this, you can hear them going by, this, this great group of, of, of mostly young people. Um, what are they saying? Are they coming to you and saying, as, as a, the sustainability strategists here, are they asking for your help? Are they, do they, is there any sense that they're more concerned or more engaged? Or is it kind of business as usual? Definitely not business as usual. I think I think that's uh, Im important to address because I get asked every single day by employees, "What do you make of this? You know, where are we going?" And you know, I'm in my role. I'm focused on su sustainability, but I I do like like you do, Joel. I look at these roles as broader resiliency, and resiliency incorporates a, a basically dispelling the fears or, or, or better yet, raising the hopes of, of individuals in a corporation like this. This is an extremely diverse corporation. I mean, we're always working on that. So we're all of our peers to, to all of our credit. Um, but it's still a challenge. And, and now we're in a situation where we need to give them hope. But again, I think it's pointing the direction. And so when I do talk to people throughout the company, um, you know, again, I go back to that sort of central theme of, you know, there, there are things we can do we're, we've taken the right strategy, we've had the right approach, um, and you can participate. You're not alone, you know. So when you and I talk about this again in a year, 
the beginning of 2018. What are you hoping to be able to tell me in terms of what, not necessarily what the Trump administration or Congress or or anything in the world that's happened specifically, but at Adobe, what you've managed to do in in light of this or in the context of holding or moving forward during this uncertain time? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a question mark, I think, for everyone, particularly in our in our industry. Um, but the way that I would look at it is there's sort of the best case scenario, which would be we've exceeded our goals, and we've done it in a way that absolutely proves that these sustainability actions are not just to feel good. They make good business sense. There is an ROI attached to every project that we do. We're thriving because of it. That's sort of the maximum. The minimum would be that we've worked with all of our peers. Um, you know, I look at the the array of companies in the GBIN membership that we've helped each other along because I do think that a lot of people have serious questions about how am I going to move my business forward in this environment. I mean, we're lucky that we're in this tech environment, which seems to be really evolved in terms of looking ahead. But I see some heavy material businesses that have deep questions about how they're going to be addressing these things. And in a year from now, I hope we can all say, thank you for your help, because I think the collaboration piece is everything. And the more that we tend to go it alone, the least successful we'll be. Well, Vince, thank you for your help and for your leadership and for for the hope that I think so many of us are looking for. Vince Digneo, Sustainability Strategist at Adobe Systems. Joel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, interesting stuff from Adobe. We'll be sure to keep tracking what they're doing as well as many others. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find the organizations, stories and events that we've mentioned in this episode and all the links you need. Thanks again, as always, to our podcast director, Soraya Melkonian. A gentle reminder that GreenBiz 17 begins February 14th in Phoenix. There's still time to register. You'll find information about that on greenbiz.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send us by email at 350 at com, And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day. <laughs>